Welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. We're your hosts. I'm Sarah, and I'm here today with Jen and Ashley. This is Ashley. We'll chat about our Unabridged Book Club's pick of the month, recommend related books, and share our nerdy English teacher love of reading with our Unabridged highlights and with short episodes featuring targeted topics. To follow along with our schedule, visit our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hey, this is Jen. Welcome to our Unabridged Book Club episode discussing Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. Before we get started, we want to remind you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. All right, so first, here's a summary. Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy is a nonfiction account of his work as an attorney with prisoners on death row and with individuals who were sentenced to life in prison when they were children. The book covers the scope of his career, from the reasons he pursued this type of law in the first place to the ways that he works to combat systemic racism, prejudice against the poor, and just general dehumanization. Just Mercy is an emotional read and one that inspires outrage and action to bring about social change as Stevenson uncovers the callousness and cruelty that inflict the system and that plague individuals. So as we get started, let's just do general impressions. And then I will just say I'm already dreading it because I know we'll leave out a lot because this book has something on every page. But general impressions, Sarah, what did you think? I don't think that I was prepared for how much this book was going to affect me. And I found it I found it both compelling and really hard to read at the same time. I think that I gained this whole perspective that I was not aware that I that that had been kind of laying dormant inside of me because I don't think that I have really thought about all of the issues surrounding capital punishment and the way that we treat different types of individuals in our in our society. So it was very it was eye opening, it was transformative and I it just made me just in awe of Brian Stevenson and the work that he does. And honestly, it just makes me feel that I need to do more for social issues and things that affect the people in our country and just to try to be more of an activist because I just feel like I don't do enough. So I think that awoke something it wakened something in me that I need to do more. So mm-hmm. I thought it was very, very impactful. I thought it was so well done, so mm-hmm. well written, and I just I loved it. I told you both earlier that I think it has definitely landed on one of my top books of all time for its transformative nature for me and also just for the writing. I thought mm-hmm. it was great mm-hmm. and just so full of information that everyone should know. Mm-hmm. Ashley, what did you think? Yeah, I felt like this was one of the most impactful books I've read, Mm -hmm. I think. And for a lot of the reasons that Sarah outlined. And I felt like, (laughs) I feel like I'm having a hard time getting warmed up here. Um, But I felt like it, what I loved about what Stevenson does is I think that he make everything is so focused on the individual stories and the way that the systemic situations impact the Mm -hmm. individual. And I think that is what makes it powerful because I feel like a lot of times when we talk about issues like mass incarceration or the death penalty, we speak in broad strokes Mm -hmm. and it's hard to change people's minds. Mm -hmm. And I think when you get right down to so many situations that are so profoundly and pretty much and then there's no controversy about whether they are unfair. Mm-hmm. When you have those exact accounts, it's really hard for somebody to combat that and try to defend the other side of the issue. And mm-hmm. I think that is what is needed to bring about change. So I really love, and I mean, he talks about the things that have already changed because of EGA's work mm-hmm. and some, some of the you know, some of the processes that have been resolved, some of the cases that have been resolved, and then some of the things that have changed in, in the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals already. But there's still a lot of work to be done. And I think, like Sarah said, it's the kind of book that you read and then think, like, I don't mean this in a negative way, but, you know, what am I doing with my life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's a good question to ask yourself. And I think, like Sarah said, 
it is good for all of us to read something that ignites in the reader a feeling that more needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that's what we need in society is people waking up every day and thinking, I need to do more. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what he does. And that's what's so inspiring about his story and about his life is that he not only presses on, but takes on more and more to bring about change in Mm -hmm. these profoundly important issues for people who have otherwise been overlooked by our society. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's a phenomenal book and one that is so painful because it is true and because these things have happened and are continuing to happen to individual people who are so personalized in the story. Mm -hmm. But it is precisely that emotional impact that causes people to bring about change Mm -hmm. so I think that that's good for us to have to examine some of that Mm -hmm. what about you Jen yeah this was my second time through the book and so I had read it several years ago and often I you know I remember things about books but this one stuck with me more even as I started it again I was sort of dreading reading particular stories that I still remembered from the first time through that horrified me but also, and this sounds strange, but the thing that I came away with it, I just had this feeling of hope because you guys, as you were reading, kept telling me how hard it is to read. And it is hard to read when I was rereading it. But I also think, and I saw Brian Stevenson speak at the National Book Festival. And I think I, there, it was one of the most packed rooms I've been in at that event. And I think it's because mm-hmm. he is so hopeful and so... He both frankly acknowledges all of the problems, and they are rife in our system. But he also shows you what a difference one person can make. Mm-hmm. And so I think the systemic discussions that he has in the book of the, the reasons that a lot of these people are imprisoned are quite impactful for my brain. But the moments that really touch me are the small moments, um, like when he puts his arm around somebody mm-hmm. or... There's one where he's with someone who is in a hospital and the back of his robe is open and he just takes a minute and ties the back of his robe. And so I just think his work to bring dignity to people mm-hmm. is what stuck with me and what made me want to reread it, even though then I felt bad because then I'm putting you all through. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of you're, it's like you're being put through the ringer because every new powerful story about an individual is someone suffering that you're being exposed to. But then here's this man who is gathering all of these people to him and just building these teams of people to work toward justice and toward mercy and toward seeing people as people and not as just, I don't don't know, faceless victims of a system that we can't control and therefore we have to give in to. So, yeah, rereading it, I I felt bad for both of you with my notes page because (laughs) I had to give them a tour through my notes page because I just, on almost every page, I marked something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is just a powerful way of looking at the world. It's not even, it's not even a fact that the facts are stunning, but a lot of it's just the way that he can look at the world and see horrible things, but not lose hope. And so I just love it so much. Yeah. I just, I think when when you were saying I mean it was really painful to Mm -hmm. read but I also think of course that comes from a place of privilege and so I think it makes me feel guilty whenever I say that a book is hard to read Mm -hmm. because people are living that life Walter McMillan lived that life and for a long long time and it impacted him until he died Mm -hmm. and so I think it's important to read those Mm -hmm. stories but I think what Stevenson does so well that also makes it so painful is that for one thing of course it is actual accounts Mm -hmm. so I love fiction and I love the ability of fiction to tell the truth Mm -hmm. but sometimes when things are really hard I can take some comfort in what is fictionalized Mm -hmm. or what has been editorialized or um, what has you know what what the author has brought to the table and in this situation Mm -hmm. you just can't do that and I think that even if you already I mean I have always felt really strongly about the death penalty I think even if you're already on the side Mm -hmm. of not wanting that to be in our country we still wake up every day and live in a country where it exists and it is painful to look at the face of that and the individuals who are put in those chairs and read the account of them being executed Mm -hmm. that is painful Mm -hmm. and so I think it it I just wanted to say that I feel like it is important to read through hard things right but more than I think our on our podcast we have tried to read Mm -hmm. a lot of books that I think take on hard issues but it was it is the overwhelming evidence Mm -hmm. of so many individual lives 
who have been completely destroyed because of really unfair things that is you know mm-hmm. that makes this one stand out to me yeah in the emotional impact yeah I'm really glad you acknowledged that because when I was reading I would have to stop and then I would have to self-reflect that I'm coming from this place mm-hmm. where I have the privileges that the people that I'm reading about do not have mm-hmm. and that they are as much of a human as any one of us mm-hmm. and it just so then I'm in turn felt guilty yeah. and then I'm like, how dare I feel guilty that I'm, you know what I mean? Yes. That I can't yeah. read this and get through it. So, I mean, I think that it is, I mean, it's tough, but it's very important and it's necessary. And I think on my Instagram post, when I reviewed it, I said it should be a must read for all mm-hmm. human beings yes. and that it makes you blindingly aware of the privilege that you have, yeah. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, yeah, and I think that if we in America are continuing to support these systems, then we should be looking right at the face of it. Right. I mean, that's at the core. If it is so hard that we can barely get through it, then that means we need to deeply examine as a Mm -hmm. society both the mass incarceration and the attitude toward life imprisonment Mm -hmm. or the death penalty. But it was painful, and I think, you know, just – not just Walter's account that we are so close to and that's woven so beautifully throughout this story, but also, I mean, when we got to all the seven, I'm sure we'll talk more about this, but I mean, the mother, you know, Mm -hmm. the the mom who births a stillborn child and then is prosecuted for that. I mean, all, I mean, just absolutely horrendous. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was also these like small accounts and all of the teens Mm -hmm. who were involved, you know, who were put on, Mm-hmm. life sentence who were tried as adults I mean all of that stuff it was like each time I got to a new case my heart broke in a different way mm-hmm. well because I think it's such a commentary on poverty too and yes. there was this comment that that was included in the book that said Walter made me understand why we have to reform a system of, cr- cr- of criminal justice that continues to treat people better if they are rich and guilty mm-hmm. than if they are poor and innocent and I felt that came at the end and I felt that that really summarize the way that poverty played this role in both the mass incarceration and the capital punishment and and just just a total lack of a social safety net because I think with Marsha's story where she could not get prenatal care because she had no money Mm -hmm. and knew it was a high-risk pregnancy Mm -hmm. yes so high-risk pregnancy which she knew but she had birthed five children and thought surely I can get through this and then realized that she was bleeding mm-hmm. I mean you just think about all the lack of society's mm-hmm. care that gets to that moment and then she's having to birth a stillborn yeah. child and then go through this other yeah. completely horrendous set of circumstances outside of the profound devastation of a mom who has a miscarriage that late in pregnancy yeah, I think that concern with poverty brackets the book because it's on page six that he is first flying down to his internship and the mm-hmm. person, I'm going to look up his name, who is running the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee, Steve Bright, says kind of in this folksy way, them without the capital get the punishment. But I think, yeah, the yep. quote, Sarah, that you read is at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. That's at the beginning that that is just this ever-present awareness of unfairness in so many systems. He highlights the way we treat the mentally ill and the way the healthcare mm-hmm. system has failed them. He he looks back in history at the way that slavery has become modernized with mass incarceration, well, first with Jim Crow and mass incarceration. And he just, he has such a view, it, both deep and broad, mm-hmm. of what has resulted in the place we are that I just felt every page has some sort of revelation. Mm-hmm. And again, they mm-hmm. are both intellectual and emotional revelations yeah I just the structure of the book that decision to have Walter McMillian's case in every other chapter through the entire book and then to intersperse those individual cases each of which really highlights a new injustice Mm -hmm. I think is so strong and Mm -hmm. so smart because you, you've got the investment of that long story and seeing the way McMillian was treated from the beginning, even just with his relationship with Kelly, the Kelly person, her last name's Kelly, all the way to his death, which certainly came about early because Karen, of the, Karen, thank, Karen, Karen, thank you, Kelly. Karen Kelly, because of the years mm-hmm. that he had spent in prison for something that he clearly had not done. And I think my certainty from the very first moment that he had not done it 
and Stevenson's certainty mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. he had not done it is so stunning because I've listened to what Sarah and I both yeah. <laughs> we're, we're kind of true crime podcast junkies. Yes. And I think there are a lot of times that there's, I think I have questions mm-hmm. still. And I, and I think there are times also that I don't, one that comes to mind is in the dark, the Curtis yes. flower story that also is in the deep South mm-hmm. and to in it, I mean, I do think it's not a parent, a book pairing, but I think it would pair nicely yes. with this book to listen to that and his story and what has happened over the 20 years that he's been in prison and never been like on his appeals and all and just this uh, racism, basically, mm-hmm. that he is having to deal with and be in prison for 20 yeah. years for something that to me, it seemed like he didn't commit. Right. So. Well, and when you see the flaws in the way that whole system works mm-hmm. and the corruption in the people in power and who, who has reasons, the power right. too and the people mm-hmm. who have the power what they look like and who the people right. who are incarcerated right. what they look like mm-hmm. and i think brian stevenson does a really good job of showing the people who are in power and mm-hmm. what what they look like and the the resources that they have versus who's incarcerated and the resources they have well and even the victims when he said i'm trying to find it but he says the there's no statistic that tells you more about someone's sentence than the race of the victim. Yeah. I thought, wow. So even the person who has been disempowered because they are the victim, mm-hmm. but their race can still impact the sentence of someone else. I well, that and that, you know, I thought again, he does, he does such a great job of showing that with the Karen Kelly mm-hmm. murder versus not Karen Kelly, where she was uh, involved on yeah. Rhonda Morrison's death. Mm-hmm. So I think he does a nice job of supporting that by showing the two young women who die. Vicki Lynn Pittman. Vicki Lynn Pittman is the one who is impoverished and her death goes largely unnoticed, whereas Rhonda Morrison's death is, you know, has a lot of notoriety, Mm -hmm. gets a lot of attention, and they're desperate to find the killer. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff is like, oh, we have to figure out what happened. Where so yeah, it's it's also like who even gets noticed, mm-hmm. yeah, and how much their perspective matters also because in the case with the bomb on the, oh yeah, um, we have notes here, folks, but there are just a lot of names and stories which I think is really powerful, but also hard to speak off the cuff about. But where the family Herbert Richardson. Say it again. Herbert Richardson. So Herbert Richardson's situation where the family of the girl who died was saying, we do not want this Mm -hmm. for this man. And, of course, we are devastated. And, of course, we wish it hadn't happened. But we don't wish this upon him. Again, goes back to who has power and who are we serving and to what end. Because if the point is to bring about justice for the people who suffer because of the crime, clearly that is not what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I just think he does a really nice job of highlighting that and showing how in so many instances he just forces us to ask what is the purpose? Right. What are we doing this for? And who is deciding what that purpose is? He says, we're supposed to sentence people fairly after fully considering their life circumstances, but instead we exploit the inability of the poor to get the legal assistance they need, all so we can kill them with less resistance. And you see that over and over because so many of the cases he takes on are appeals so late in the process, and it's just this... When he has his realizations in several of the cases, well, it's just done. Nobody's even willing to talk to me about it anymore. They say it's too late. Well, how can it ever be? Yeah, I just, how can it ever be too late? If the person is still alive, it should not be too late to consider their fate. But because he found, Stevenson found out about the case too late or someone asked him for help too late and you see his feeling of helplessness that he can't get to all of those people, and yet he still valiantly tries. But when he's met with just that stone wall of, well, the process is the process and it is over, just the bureaucracy that plagues the system as well it is stunning. And yeah. I think that happens with so many, you know, with so many governmental programs. That has to happen. You have to have rules. But then when you see the humans who are being impacted daily totally divorced from the rules, it's infuriating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. We, yeah. Let's, I don't even know. I, I feel, we have a list of talking points. 
I feel like every time we are going to get off. So let's just move on to the system of mass incarceration, which definitely is a huge part of the book. What were some of the moments where Steven talk, Stevenson talks about mass incarceration that you found most striking? I mean, I think one thing that really struck me that I appreciated him accounting was all of the situations of teens mm-hmm. who committed, particularly the crimes that were not homicide, but were sentenced to life yes. without parole. Because I think if we are thinking that we're going to put a 13-year-old in for the duration of their natural life. And try them as adults. And try yeah. them as adults. And put them that, in an adult prison. I mean, Oh, that know. all of that oh was unbelievable but i just think that idea of again what 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 is the purpose of prison because Mm -hmm. if the purpose is reform then there's no opportunity for those teens to reform because we're saying it's not possible and i feel like that was really it was more likely for teens to get life in prison than adults it's the illogic of that is just stunning And he said, I thought this was beautiful, these children are the products of an environment over which they have no real control, Mm -hmm. passengers through narrow pathways in a world they never made. Mm -hmm. And I think he does such a great job of highlighting the brain science that talks about the decision-making power of teenagers and how so many of them adults don't even recognize the person who committed the crime because it was so long ago. Mm -hmm. And yet they have been in this system. Some of them have what multiple sclerosis because of their years in the prison and their mistreatment. Yes. I mean, I think that it was also speaking to how badly their mental Mm -hmm. and physical health deteriorated within the prison system that just compounds the problem. Because again, what is our responsibility as society? It's to take care of people. And so it's really hard. I mean, when he did the account, was it Jimmy who was in the wheelchair? I think it's Joe Joe. Sullivan. That's right. So, when Joe Sullivan was in the wheelchair, in the ca- they, when they put him in the cage to transport him and then couldn't get his wheelchair back out of the cage and the inmates were trying to help, horrifying. Yeah. Horrifying. It was a scene out of a horror movie, mm-hmm. but that was the real life depiction of exactly what was happening. And he, again, who are we afraid of? Right. I mean, how is this kid, you know, who yeah. was an adult then, but how is this adult who's been there since he was a child going to hurt someone right. on his way to talk to a lawyer? Mm-hmm. And I just think that that, I mean, it goes back to a lot of the struggles that we're having right now in society mm-hmm. about, um, you know, who are we afraid of and mm-hmm. why? And how does fear drive our actions? Mm-hmm. And how does that affect our criminal justice system? Yeah. And I think profoundly mm-hmm. well that the system just isn't built for these children though ian manuel is the one who i can't remember what crime he committed he, but he was he shot he it was a botched robbery yes. and he shot the lady in the cheek that's right but yeah. i know this because I, it stuck with me because i looked him up because i mean some of the times when i was reading this mm-hmm. i had to look up and see what the story was you know what the mm-hmm. rest of the story was because and you know so i just needed sad. i just wanted to know yeah. and so um, the, and you, she was the one that was the letters where she mm-hmm, yes. corresponded with him and realized he had no one and they and she was to be close and maybe we can link to the story but she she was the first one he visited when he eventually got out oh, and wow. there's an article about it so that's so, well, pictures. so he was put in solitary confinement because he was so young when he was put in prison that they were worried that the other prisoners would be a danger to him so they put him in solitary confinement for 18 years And I've read studies about the horrors of solitary confinement. But so when you think that that's a protective measure meant to protect this kid, and of course it's doing damage to him. I, yeah, just again, we could just pile up the instances of moments that I was outraged. And you just think that someone is there implementing this process because that's what the rules say that you do just the judges who weren't allowed to change sentences because they were bound in by laws. When the one saw that there, I can't remember who it was. I'll see if I can find it. The judge wanted to not give life in prison because he did not see evidence of intent, but because of the laws had to do it, had to give the sentence of life in prison. I really wish I could think of 
which case that was. I'll see if I can find it and mention it at a random time in our conversation, <laughs> which I'm sure will be great. All right. So what? Uh, anything else about mass incarceration before we move on? I mean, I feel like we could talk about that extensively because mm-hmm. I do think that that's a big part of what he reveals Mm -hmm. so well through the cases but I mean I do think what we talked about just the lack of treatment for people lack of access Mm -hmm. and the ways that they are they they continue to be penalized beyond just being imprisoned Mm -hmm. so of course a large part of the book deals with the death penalty and Walter McMillian's case definitely is a centerpiece to that discussion but he also talks about other people who were who were given the death penalty or were sentenced to the death penalty. What were your thoughts as you were reading about that part of the book? I mean, I, I think that it's hard for me to understand why we have the death penalty in America as my personal opinion. So I think it's hard to justify because I think if we believe that killing is wrong, mm-hmm. then I don't understand why we kill to show that killing is wrong. Is my personal feeling. But I think that what I like about the book, again, I think sometimes when I talk about those kinds of issues, and I think this is often true, we speak in generalizations, we talk in the abstract, Mm -hmm. and nobody's changing anybody's mind. Right. I think what Stevenson does that to me is very convincing is show why it's so problematic, Mm -hmm. both with the horrific executions that he accounts And again, I mean, the brutality of those, Mm -hmm. the barbaricness of them, and also with so so many situations where people didn't do the crime that they are being put to death for. So I think that both parts of those are what, to me, makes his argument more convincing Mm -hmm. about how wrong it is. Yeah. I have to say, I I will have a bunch of links in the show notes to other resources because all of us... I think things that we'd read or listened to popped into our minds. One thing I watched recently was John Oliver's discussion of lethal injections. And that was powerful. I will say there is explicit language because John Oliver is explicit, but it is well worth watching just that one, one method of giving the death penalty. But sorry, Sarah, I think. Oh no, I was just going to say he, uh, Stevenson provides all these, wonderful quotes to explain I feel that can answer our questions when we're Mm -hmm. our discussion questions and one that stood out to me is it goes like this I told the congregation that Walter's case had taught me that the death penalty is not whether people deserve to die for the crimes they commit the real question of capital punishment in this country is do we deserve to kill and I think that's what Mm -hmm. Ashley was saying earlier and I just feel like that I mean I think that that just is a thread that he proves time and time again throughout the course of the book mm-hmm. that the unreliability, the way in which things can be botched so easily, mm-hmm. and just the lack of overall care of the people who – I mean, the the one that stood out to me was the gentleman who had poor veins because mm-hmm. of drug use and that doctors and nurses aren't allowed there to administer the lethal injection and just the circumstances surrounding that execution Mm -hmm. i mean i just can't i just can't i mean you know it's just horrifying it's i'm it's i mean part of me is horrified that i live in a place that's willing to do this to other human beings Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's why i think the book is powerful because mm -hmm. i think if we can't look at the face right. of that mm-hmm. then we need to reconsider the system mm-hmm. and i think that's what it does so well and you touched on this too ashley that the the faces and the personal stories that brian stevenson brings to light gives both both mass incarceration and the death of death penalty these faces mm-hmm. that we can look up and say these are the faces of the people that have had these horrendous, horrendous things happen to them. And I mean, Walter, mm-hmm. I, I mean, the, the minute that he, they start, that the book started to talk about him, I looked up his face because I wanted to see his face when I was reading mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. And to think that, that he was on death row for six years for a crime that he did not commit. And not only did he not commit it, there was, there was overwhelming evidence that he was innocent. And that the fact that those, the people in power, decided that he was going to be the one to serve the time because of what they couldn't do, which was find the person who really did it. I mean, it just is, Mm -hmm. it's just, it's just horrifying. And I don't, 
I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. Stevenson says at one point, in debates about the death penalty, I had started arguing that we would never think it was humane to pay someone to rape people convicted of mm -hmm. rape or assault and abuse someone guilty of assault or abuse. Yet we were comfortable killing people who kill, in part because we think we can do it in a manner that doesn't implicate our own humanity, the way that raping or abusing someone would. I couldn't stop thinking that we don't spend much time contemplating the details of what killing someone actually involves. And I just thought that was powerful because I do think it's this weird disassociation that we have and that people who have to do it have from the actual, from what they're actually doing. That in some way they're telling themselves, and John Oliver talks about this too. It's, that's a pretty brilliant episode. He talks about in some way we have fooled ourselves that we can do this in a way that is humane and you can't. Mm -hmm. And that is the bottom line of, yeah, every work that I've ever read about it and the whole thing about getting the the lethal injection drugs from that were not fda approved and buying them like on the mm -hmm. black market i just it's just appalling that that is not i don't know it's it's appalling that it's done it's appalling that people go to the black market mm -hmm. and these prisons and are able to use those drugs on people i don't know well and i, I think <laughs> that when people think about the death penalty Again, in the abstract, mm -hmm. I think often people assume mm -hmm. that the only people who wind up on death row mm -hmm. are mass murderers mm -hmm. who have killed a ton right. of people, mm -hmm. either like serial as a killers. serial killer mm -hmm. or in something like a mass shooting, mm -hmm. which is becoming all too common. But that's not the case right. at all. And I think that is another thing that's really powerful in the book is looking at the specifics. Of, I mean, how could anyone be put on death row for a non-homicide? Mm -hmm. If they did not kill someone, how on earth did they right. wind up on death row? But he gives lots of examples of that. And then even the people who did, I mean, like I referenced before, I'm struggling with the names here today, folks. But the guy, the guy who did the bomb. Oh, uh, Herbert. Herbert Richardson. So... With Herbert Richardson's situation where he was devastated, of course he should not have built the bomb. Right. Of course. And that is clear in the in Stevenson's account and in Herbert's understanding of the situation. But because of all his trauma, because of PTSD, because he was desperate to make this connection to this woman, he builds this bomb and then inadvertently kills a girl that he is devastated by. The, her family is devastated by it. Her family does not want him to die. And yet everything just keeps on rolling. I mean, and moving toward putting him in an electric chair. Mm -hmm. for, for what purpose? I mean, it so I think that also that I think that, again, the way that we make, the way that we wake up every day and live with the fact that this is a, a law in our country or that it's allowed is by thinking that this is only these really, really horrifying scenarios mm -hmm. And that's just not the case. Again, it goes back to poverty. It mm -hmm. goes back to lack of representation. It goes back to lack of agency and power. Mm -hmm. Those yeah. are the people winding up on death row. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When over and over we see in the book people so grateful to Brian Stevenson just for coming to talk to them that they have not been able to speak to someone who can represent them and certainly someone who is as kind and allows a, them as much dignity as Stevenson has. But early in the book when he's at that internship and it's the first mm -hmm. time he's met someone That's in death row, and all he says is, is it the next month? You're not going to die in the next month mm -hmm. or, or maybe, or maybe it, it might be the next year. It was a period of time that, yeah, that remember. for Henry, yeah, sounds right. the right. guy, was so relieved. He was like, oh, I can see my family. I can right. invite them to come. I didn't want them to come see me because I thought I could die yeah. at any and time. just that moment of hope, which is – of course, horrible, because then he could die the next day, you know, the, the, a year and a day later. But just knowing that he has that reprieve is so stunning and that Stevenson is able to give that much hope. But it's also pitiful that mm -hmm. that is all it takes because the rest of their lives are so hopeless that that small moment of humanity and comfort it changes things for them. Well, and I think that as Walter's health deteriorated toward the end of his mm -hmm. life, part of what he seemed able to articulate so well was the fear that he lived in every moment mm -hmm. of being on death row. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, Stevenson talks about how he was so gracious and he never really talked about all of the horrible things that had happened while he was there. And he was just so grateful to be out and to be exonerated and to be able to move forward. But that as 
that all started creeping in on him um, with his dementia, I felt like that just showed that, you know, that, again, the lifelong impact, even for people who are so fortunate to get out of these horrendous circumstances, that, of course, that trauma never fades, and that that daily waking up, and, I mean, again, I mean, the graphic accounts of the smell of burned flesh, Mm -hmm. and the clamoring on the bars because of protesting against somebody else dying, I mean, to be in the face of death performed by the state all the time until your own is really horrendous. So another big population that Stevenson definitely talks about a lot are those people who have mental disabilities, but there is no, uh, and not just mental disabilities, but I think that's what our focus will be, but just cases where people's circumstances are not considered at all in their sentences that, Yeah, so let's start with mental disabilities. There are a lot of people, especially I felt like more with the children who were given life in prison who definitely have mental disabilities, but there is no understanding in the case, in the sentence, that there might have been a mitigating factor that should change the result of the trial. And I thought, this is a separate issue, but mental illness as well. That they're just people's lives just do are not considered at all in the court case. And the easy way that those in power can dismiss things that of course have created the people as they are. So one of those cases is, and this isn't mental disability or mental illness, but it's just another case where you don't consider the circumstance. So there's a boy, Charlie, who's 14 when he kills his mother's boyfriend the mother's boyfriend is a police officer who had beaten his mother almost to death. He thought that she was dead. And Charlie is immediately put in an adult prison after he is arrested where he is sexually assaulted multiple times. And then Brian Stevenson comes to see him and provides him some comfort after he's finally able to get Charlie to open up to him and then is able to move him into a safer environment until his trial. And then he ends up in prison. And so I just think, how could anyone hear that story and not say, okay, so there is a mitigating factor here that we need to take into consideration and change the sentence to reflect this person's life circumstances. I don't know. I felt like there were, like on almost every page, Uh there was something that I was like, how can they not take this into consideration? How do they just say, well, this is the rule. And the rule says, if this happens, this is the sentence. Yeah, and it also, um, you mentioned this before, Jen, but if they'd had a better lawyer, mm-hmm. if they had money, they'd had a better lawyer. Right. If they'd had a better lawyer, the lawyer would have showed all those things, but then Stevenson's always acting in the back end mm-hmm. to try to correct what was done wrong. So I think that those mitigating factors often would be examined right. when given adequate representation. But without somebody to fight for, in this case, a child... There isn't anyone to say Mm -hmm. her, you know, she was lying on the floor with blood pooling all around her. And he he was so afraid that he couldn't go pick up the phone to call Mm -hmm. 911, Mm -hmm. even though he thought she would lay there and die. Mm -hmm. And I think that is profound. There Mm -hmm. Again, I think that Stevenson just shows there is no one who can read that account and and question why a a young person... Mm -hmm would in that moment make that decision it's just very understandable that again it's not that i don't think stevenson ever tries to say that anyone has the right to kill right but he frames that to just show that i mean again the boy who adored his mom couldn't even bring himself to go pick up the phone because mm-hmm. he was that deathly afraid right. well and of clearly this he was suffering from ptsd mm-hmm. clearly and again i just think and I, that i realized that question was kind of all over the place because i started with mental disabilities and then i went to mental illness and then i went to this one particular case but i think in all of them in all of those cases you could see the way that someone could have acted i'll go back to the title with mercy and given mm-hmm. that person some care and some attention to rehabilitation, to helping them, to helping them be meaningful people in the world who could play a role in society instead of being locked away and getting more and more and more sick. It, it breaks my heart. 
or even holding accountable the people in power. I just, I yeah. I mean, I don't know if that is something that we are going to get to in detail today, but I think that one of the most horrifying mm. things for me, and I felt this way in Dope Sick too when we read that, but the most one of the most horrifying things too is that the people in power are still in power. The mm-hmm. people that right. that brought about these false accusations, like of Walter's case, and the people that put him on death row before he was even charged, mm-hmm. and all that. Those people and are protected. They're protected. That the, these mm-hmm. and the lawyers who didn't give adequate representation to these kids, they're all still protected, and they, there's no consequences. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know how we can do better if there are not consequences for the people in power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think we've talked a lot about the people that Stevenson represents mm-hmm. and the cases that he details. But another thing that I thought was so amazing in the book is the way that Stevenson shows his own account of experiences of where he is mm-hmm. in a position of relative power mm-hmm. to, you know, in consider in, in relationship to a lot of the people he's representing. Mm-hmm. And yet like in that courtroom where, oh my he, where because I mean, I mean, frankly, he was a black man sitting mm-hmm. at a, Table. Table at a lawyer's table. And therefore, the judge, who was white, presumed that he was in the wrong place. Right. And I loved how in that moment he accounts for how he laughed along with them after. So the the judge and the person he's chatting with laugh about the mistake and how he said he couldn't dare take on the judge's racism because he was afraid it would jeopardize the case mm-hmm. of his client. And so he didn't want to do that. But then how wrong that whole scenario is. And same thing, I, I thought, again, small moment in the course of the whole book. But when he was in his car with the stereo oh. and he's listening to the music. Outside of his own apartment. Outside of his own apartment in his own car, listening to the music. And how he said, you know, his speakers didn't work well and... It couldn't have been too loud, but he was just enjoying these songs. And again, we've all said how much we just adore him because he clearly has been working so hard his entire life. So anyway, he has this moment of reprieve and then has this whole altercation with a police officer that he shows how it could have ended with him dead on the street. Mm -hmm. And I think he he speaks to those things but makes the book not at all about him or right. his own experiences but i love the way that he interweaves his mm-hmm. own experiences and shows how in just the twist of a moment yeah well when he talks about how he would have acted when he was a teenager he says i wanted to run right then and when i had been a teenager i know that i would have and well, because he had a course. gun pointed at him <laughs> exactly like who wouldn't i think and i think that's the thing that i find so powerful in his particular ability Mm -hmm. to tell the story in a way that makes it really hard to refute because Mm -hmm. who can argue with that moment when you are reading along with him and you know him Mm it I just think it I, I that's what I like so much about the book and why I think like Sarah said it's a must read is because I think that he has the ability to change people's minds Mm -hmm. on a lot of these issues that we need to change our minds on yeah one of the powerful episodes that I just love, and this one had stuck with me from the first time I read it, was there's that prison guard who has the truck that's covered in Confederate flags and racist slogans, and the first time Brian Stevenson sees him, he's coming to visit a client, and the guard makes sure that he knows that that is his truck, and then subjects Stevenson to a strip search and makes him just go through this whole series of steps that aren't attorneys are not supposed to have to go through but Stevenson undergoes them because he's trying to get to the client who is Joe Sullivan and Joe Sullivan is the one who was in the cage in the wheelchair and because of his experiences really had a mental disability and it constantly is asking Brian Stevenson to bring him a milkshake and it has a hard time getting beyond the fact that Stevenson can't bring him a milkshake every time he comes to visit him and the prison guard. I just remember the very first time I read it, that was one of those moments when I had to put the book down because Mm -hmm. it was so infuriating that he was allowed to get away with that and to abuse his power in that way. And then you see after Sullivan's trial, 
where he talks a lot about his experiences in foster homes, the prison guard comes up to Brian Stevenson and talks about his own experience in foster homes and says, I didn't realize that had happened with Joe, and basically is thanking Stevenson for doing what he did for Joe Sullivan. Stevenson goes to meet Joe Sullivan again after the trial and is waiting for him to ask about the milkshake, and the guard has bought him a milkshake. And in some ways, I, it's very Pollyanna of me because I love that moment so much, but I also think it shows the power of kindness and the power of when you can open yourself up to hearing someone else's story and to feeling empathy, that that can spur you on to kindness and that that simple act of doing something kind for someone else can be so meaningful. And so I just think it is both one of the most enraging episodes in the book, but also one that, again, just gives me hope that things can change and that people can make individual choices that can make a big difference for others. I don't, I don't know. I just... I wanted to say one thing. It's a little off topic of what you were talking about. That is about, okay. But I well, got off the rails anyway. <laughs> well, but just when you said the thing about the Confederate flag um, being on the guard's truck, I thought Brian Stevenson did a very good job in the book of offering commentary on the why the Confederate flag is problematic. Yes. Because I know we live in an area where the Confederate flag flag is used to mm-hmm. show Southern pride. The, that's the claim of the people who wear it or – or post it but I think he does a really good job of showing why the confederate flag is problematic Mm -hmm. to marginalized communities to people who have had to deal with it for a long time and it being a symbol of something hateful and I think he does I feel like as a person who grew up in a small town I totally understand why that is but I think he does a really good job of providing concrete examples of why it is problematic. Mm-hmm. And so I think that especially for people who may think that it's okay yeah. to 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 use those symbols that it is would be worth a read of even if you just read that mm-hmm. part to read his commentary on that image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I I know. I feel like he covers <laughs> so much <laughs> every topic. Yeah. I can't even think of anything that he left out. When I learned so much, I mean, mm-hmm. it, the personal stories are the star of the book. Yes. I mean, but I think that the information and just what he he teaches mm-hmm. to the reader throughout the course of the book, I mean, it is just rich with with really really well researched information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one thing that Stevenson talks about or talks about at the National Book Festival is that one of his big focuses is trying to set up memorials in the South of places where people were lynched. And Ashley, when you at the beginning talked about the fact that we have to talk about these things and to face these things and that they are painful, but we have to deal with them. And that is basically his philosophy in having these memorials because his idea is the more we hide things Mm -hmm. and the more we ignore them, the more we perpetuate Mm -hmm. them. And so I think this book and his... His goals are a testament to that. Um, He's going to have an HBO documentary this summer that I am really looking forward to watching because, yeah, I think we're all fangirls now (laughs) of Brian Stevenson's. Mm -hmm. But I I think that is just one more example of the way that he is really trying to get at the root of the problem and to address it, again, both in systemic ways and in individual ways and helping people. Yeah, and I was just thinking about, like, the – resounding message Mm -hmm. of the book and like Jen said I mean I do think he is just so hopeful but I think that something that I really took from it was his encounter with the lady at the courtroom and the end Mm -hmm. and how she shares with him that she is there to support all the people that she went through a really hard time when her grandson was murdered and went to the court and cried every day and then realized that she felt no better when the people who had killed him, when the boys who killed him were convicted. 
and how she was able to lean on this random stranger and that brought her so much strength in a time of desperation and how she's done that for others. And then I just loved everything she said about, she talks about him and how he had said about the, um, you know, don't throw stones mm-hmm. to Walter's congregation because a lot of people had rejected Walter in the African-American community because he'd had the affair. So even though they agreed that he had not done mm-hmm. the crime, they rejected him because he wasn't participating in the church because he had had these very public affairs that mm-hmm. he'd done these things that he, you know, that people considered to be wrong. And so then they were judging him and he was reminding all of them how we all commit sins and we all make mistakes and how we have to be gracious. But anyway, I am taking a long time to say <laughs> that I really felt like what was powerful was her talking about him as a stone catcher mm-hmm. and that it's not enough to just, I mean, I feel like what I got from that, even though she was just affirming him, mm-hmm. what I took from it was this idea of like, it's not enough to just not cast the stones. Right. You also need to be catching them. Yeah. And I mm-hmm. think that is what I think is powerful in the book is thinking about, again, I just think it makes you ask like, what more can I do? And I think it isn't just enough to be aware of the problem or to educate yourself about the problem, but instead to like actively work to, to bring about some change in mm-hmm. society for these issues that continue to plague us. So, yeah, I just was remembering, like like Jen said, I think that's really hopeful, but also empowering because it does make people feel that there's something that we can do as individuals to try to bring about positive change. Mm-hmm. I love toward the end of the book when he's talking with Rosa Parks and Johnny Carr and Virginia Durr, and they say they're asking him about what he's up to, and he tells them all, you know, all of these goals he has that some of them, when you say them in a single sentence, sound really impossible. And they say, oh, child, you're going to be tired, tired, tired. And so you have to be brave, brave, brave. And I just thought that was so beautiful because here are these icons who have done so much. And it's like, he's the next generation. He's carrying the mantle from them to, to move us to the next step, to try to combat racism and injustice in the next step. I loved when he said, this is almost at the very, very end, mercy is just when it is rooted in hopefulness and freely given. Mercy is most empowering, liberating, and transformative when it is directed at the undeserving. And I thought that was beautiful. I thought the title of the book is so, so perfect. And, you you know, just mercy. Like, it needs to be just mercy, but it's also that it's just mercy that can make a difference, that it's a small thing, and then it just takes you feeling someone else's humanity to make a difference. So now we're going to move on to our pairings for Just Mercy. Sarah, do you want to start us off? Sure. I have to be honest and say that I had a really hard time thinking of a pairing for this book because to me it is just so it has been like I said in the top of the episode it has been such a transformative book so the one book that I could think of is actually one that was a book club book for us um, just a few months ago and that is Beth Macy's Dope Sick and I think that the reason I could not get that book out of my head as a pairing for this book is because it was also just this enlightening Mm -hmm. transformative book for me so I mean having these two books so close together and both have teaching me just so much about something that I knew broadly about but not specifically Mm -hmm. and I think but what both of these books do is they give personal stories and give a face to these social issues that are talked broadly about in the media. So I think that that is the reason why they really complement each other. And they both talk about mass incarceration. And Brian Brian Stevenson touches on the mass incarceration of drug crimes committed Mm -hmm. with drugs. And Beth Macy also talks about that. And And often in both books, it's poverty driven it is marginalized groups mm-hmm. that are incarcerated because of in dope sick the drugs and so i think that they pair well together yeah. but they're both also very different so i think that that the commentary that they're making is similar and so i think that they make good pairings mm-hmm. so my again my pairing is beth makes these dope sick and you can listen to our book club episode if you want to hear <laughs> our commentary on that book 
All right, Ashley, what did you pick? So I thought of several things that I think would complement nicely, but one of them that I'm not going to talk about today because I did pair it recently is When They Call You a Terrorist. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that book is a great fit that we can still list because I think that, um, I think that, I think Patrice Con Colors does a great job of showing the impact of being marginalized, the impact of racism, the ways that those things bring about incarceration. She talks about her brother. So I think all of that. But again, I'm not going to go in depth because I think I, I did pair that recently with the dope stick episode. But I do think it's a good fit and it's it's contemporary. Mm-hmm. I also thought of Richard Wright's books, which, Mm -hmm. again, I'm not going to go into Mm -hmm. for my pairing, but I think both Black Boy and Native Son are great Mm -hmm. texts that are important literary reads, but also just speak to the experience of the African-American community in in the time that he was writing. But many of those issues pervade Mm -hmm. today, remain, remain today, persist, and are pervasive in our society and are part of what brings about the issues that the people... That, rep- that Stevenson is representing and Just Mercy are experiencing. But I landed on Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. And I think what I find so powerful about this book is just how it shows the way, it really shows how it is to be African American, an African American man in a white dominated society mm-hmm. and in a society that everything within it supports the supremacy of white people Mm -hmm. and so i just feel like it works really nicely in that regard and um so this is a broad book that covers a lot of ground um but the nameless protagonist in the beginning is put in this fighting ring and battle royale which that is often we were talking jen and i were talking Mm -hmm. before about often people teach that section Mm -hmm. kind of in isolation so it's sometimes seen as its own piece. But again, that's the beginning of Invisible Man. And then, so he's in this, like, I mean, it's like, it, it is, they're fighting like animals. People are betting. It's horrendous. It's an awful experience for him. But he also is in a situation where he can't really get out of it. And then he goes on and has a lot of things that are uplifting experiences he's he goes to college and has some success there but then there's always this underlying issue of him having to deal with the fact that he has to fit in this certain box and be this certain way in order to be accepted by society and I think that is the crux of a lot of what underlies the issues in Just Mercy as well is just that there is a status quo that that status quo people are both intentionally and unintentionally working very hard to uphold and that if you are not at the top of that social hierarchy then you are going to suffer Mm -hmm. and so he is always trying to I mean as the title Invisible Man suggests he's always trying to navigate his way through society and is also being simultaneously overlooked and exploited mm-hmm. all at the same time. And I think that is a profoundly powerful statement that Ellison is making. And so, again, um, this one is a classic, but is I, I'm wanting to revisit because, I, again, I think it's, it's important to consider it in light of where we are today. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that's Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. All right, so my pick is Ernest J. Gaines's A Lesson Before Dying. This is a book, I did teach it a few times, a whole class, and I used to offer it as a lit circle choice. It reminded me of, the, it is fiction, but it reminded me of some of the lessons of Just Mercy, um, Stevenson's ability to acknowledge the humanity of the people on death row. So in A Lesson Before Dying, it takes place in Louisiana in the 1940s, so solidly in the Jim Crow South. And one of the, there are two characters who are really the focus of the novel. One is Jefferson, and he is, I believe he's still a teenager. I can't remember exactly. He is black. He is swept up in this robbery where the owner of the store is shot and killed. And he goes through a trial and is given the death penalty, which is horrible. But just as horrible, during the trial, his the defense attorney who is defending Jefferson makes the case that 
just as you would not put a hog on to death for killing someone because the hog can't understand what it's doing, Jefferson shouldn't be put to death because he's just like the hog. And so Jefferson leaves the trial and goes to prison, both knowing that he's going to be put to death and having had his humanity and his self-regard stripped away. Jefferson's, I think it's Jefferson's aunt and Grant Wiggins, who is the other main characters, I think it's his grandmother and I may have those confused, but are really good friends. And Grant Wiggins is a black man who went away to college and came back and is now teaching at the plantation school in their community. And they asked Grant to go to the prison and to teach Jefferson to write and to give him back his dignity. And so the lesson before dying is this series of visits that Grant makes to the prison where he is just, there's no hope that Jefferson is going to be saved. That is a foregone conclusion from the beginning of the book. But what they are hoping is that before he dies, he can see himself again as human. And so that part of the book, and it's great. It's not very long. My students used to love it because it really, the the way that it confronts the issue is really compelling and you see Jefferson's writing in his journal, which is quite rudimentary, but as he starts to share more with Grant and to write more to Grant, you just see them building this beautiful relationship and hope that Jefferson finds some peace before his death. It is a powerful novel. I really, I really love it. And I think it's a great pairing for Just Mercy, even though it is fiction. So. All right, so let's, I, I feel like this episode, oh Ashley's probably going to give me a time signal here in a minute. So let's just very quickly talk about the classroom. Would you use it in the classroom? And if so, how would you use it? Well, for probably for a middle school classroom, I would pick pieces of this mm. to discuss. Some of it might be a little hard for middle mm-hmm. schoolers, but I think for our 10th graders, I think that there is a lot that even the 10th graders we have now, right now in class, I think that there is a lot of stuff that they would really enjoy discussing mm-hmm. and feel very passionately about. So I don't know that I would read the whole book, but mm-hmm. I think excerpts and portions and especially the personal stories yeah. backed up with his his information and research, I think that that could be a very good fit for the classroom. Mm -hmm. And I think I could come up with some compelling lessons for it. Yeah, I would teach this in AP Mm -hmm. or in, so I taught AP Lit and I would certainly teach it in that class. I would do it with more advanced kids, whole Mm -hmm. class. I think that the language is difficult enough Mm -hmm. and the, and that I would be reluctant. I wouldn't teach a whole book yeah. with um, a lot of my students just because I think that they would miss the power mm-hmm. of the story by getting bogged down by the writing. Mm-hmm. And I've done that before where I've taught books that I think had this profound message, but then I lost the kids along yeah. the way. And then that's never a good feeling because I think when you're talking about something this moving mm-hmm. and this important you want it to resonate so I like what Sarah said because I think mm-hmm. that for most classes what would be best at, unless you're doing advanced kids and I would say 11th or 12th that you would want to choose sections to focus on mm-hmm. for analysis and discussion but yeah I think that discussing the issues I mean again I think that this is the world that they live in and yeah. so it's important to think about for them to think about what they feel about it mm-hmm. and I think that it's really I think it could be very impactful for them because we can actually then look up the stories and see the faces and read the new stories that were out at that time. So that, I think, makes it even more relevant Mm -hmm. to them when they can actually use their device to to look things up about them. Yeah, and I definitely think it would make a great addition to a selection of literature Mm -hmm. circle choices. And I think you could have selections of books on the same topic, the ones we've talked about today. I think it would be great to have a series that looked at different systemic issues. Like if Mm -hmm. you paired this with Dope Sick and then had a couple of other options, I think that could be really interesting as well. So yeah, I would definitely use it in the classroom, but I do agree you would have to deploy it as a whole class read of the whole book very carefully Mm -hmm. because of both the topic and the way it's addressed and the way it's written. So, 
I will say we are starting something new here at Unabridged, and we are going to be creating products for teachers about books that we talk about. So look out for announcements about our teacher's guide for Just Mercy. Uh, those will be on Teachers Pay Teachers, and we'll have more details out there soon. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope that you, if you have not read Just Mercy, that you will pick it up immediately. And if you have read it, we hope that you'll share your thoughts about the book. We'll be posting about this all through the month of June. Thanks so much. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We would love to hear them. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher, on Instagram and Twitter at UnabridgedPod, or on the web at UnabridgedPod.com, or on our Patreon page. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light. Many thanks to Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer, and Tim Rieger, our videographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged. <laughs>